You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Luke 1, verse 26 through 20 through 56. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greetings came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and, his, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to, his, to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Josh, the pastor here at Praxis. If I haven't had a chance to meet you before, a big warm welcome to you on behalf of the staff and leadership. Honored you're here. Um, yeah, we are working through an Advent series at the moment. Advent is the season of looking forward to the birth of Christ that we, um, the church, have done for generations since the birth of Christ. Um, remembering back to the longing, the expectation, that hope that the people had, and how in Christ the hopes and, 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 and 
yeah, the expectations of the people were met in that Advent, that first Advent of Christ, the birth of the Savior into the world. But it's a series that's pertinent for us today because we today are in an in-between place as well. We're at a place where Christ has come, his kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's going to come in its fullness. And we find ourselves in these middle chapters, these waiting times, and sometimes um, very relatable with the people in the stories we've been reading with a longing and expectation, like that first song that we opened with this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that, that cry on our heart, come, come. And so it's, it's, a, good, it's a good series, it's a good topic, it's, a, it's, it's good to come back to this year after year because this is something that's happening in our heart day after day. Um, we've, we've been looking at, we're going to be looking at in the, over the course of the series, four different songs that have been sung. We started out in Psalm 98, taking a look at an ancient hymn that was written um, even before Jesus' birth. The first Christmas song took place before Jesus' birth. Um, the nation looking forward in expectation. Last week, Dana tracked into um, Luke 1, and we're going to be in Luke 1 and 2 now until Christmas. And what we see here is just this hunger and expectation of the people, in order to really fully grasp what's going on in this text, we need to keep a couple things in mind. One, God hadn't spoken to his people as we drop into the New Testament. God hadn't spoken to his people in 400 years. His husband broke into at the end of chapter one last week, famously called the Benedictus, one of the early hymns of the church. He, he began to sing and it was just loaded with theological truth. He said, the sun is rising, pointing back to Malachi, when Malachi said that, behold, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Now Zechariah says, here he is. The sun has risen. The one who would give light to the darkness was coming, he said. He said, the one who would guide the nation's feet into the way of peace was here. And that leads us into our text today where we pick it up this morning. We're kind of dropping in in the middle of the story we were in last week. And if you're into Tarantino movies, just to kind of make sense of this, it's kind of like this. It's like we heard a story, now we're going to drop back into the middle, and we're going to see a new character. New character, that of, of Mary. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and open your Bibles up. You're going to need it. We're in um, Luke 1. We're going to read from verse 26 to 56. And, and we're going to take a look at this figure of Mary. Mary, very famous. If you've grown up around the church, you've heard of her. Uh, lots of strange beliefs around Mary. We're going to talk about some of them. We're going to talk about um, why she is recorded, why she is, has grown famous. Really, the, the noteworthy, admirable qualities of Mary. We're going to take a look at the, the, um, the words that the angels spoke about the Messiah and see what he has to say about him. And then we're going to take a look at Mary's song in response, uh, which is full of all sorts of great truth. So we've got a good chunk of text ahead of us. Open your Bibles up, and I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Father, um, we're just thankful for a time of worship and reflecting on all these great hymns, these great songs of truth that the church has sung for ages, and some of them new, but we, we're just reminded that you are the, the Savior who has come and is coming. And as we open the text and we look back on these examples, um, these stories that have been preserved for us, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and ignite a hope in us that would sustain us in our waiting. And it's in the great name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 1, verse 26 it says this, it says, in the sixth month, 
the angel Gabriel was sent. Now, this six month, it's referring to the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. An angel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her. Or I'll, I'll, I'll pause right there. So what we see, after 450, 400, 450 years of silence, we're now seeing an angel appear again, twice, for the second time in a relatively short span of time to a younger woman now than Elizabeth, about 75 miles away from where he had first appeared to Elizabeth earlier on in this chapter. It says the angel Gabriel was sent. And that's noteworthy too, because Mary doesn't get Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life or Monica from Touched by an Angel or even Al, the big boss angel from Angels in the Outfield. You want to remember that? She doesn't get any of these guys. She gets Gabriel, who earlier on in chapter one, we're told, stands in the very presence of God. He comes. And, and, he comes to Mary. And there's lots of information about Mary um, given to us here. Whereas Elizabeth was around 70, Mary is around the age of 12 or 13. That's best guests. She's betrothed, which um, to us today, the, the closest equivalent would be she's engaged. And at this time, at around 12, 13, maybe 14 years of age, young women would become betrothed. Betrothal would take place when a suitor would come approach a parent, but he would have consulted with wise counsel, his family. The two families probably met, chatted, came to some terms, and then he came and began what was uh, about a year-long betrothal period where they would court, they would get to know one another, and then at the end of which they would become married. They took this uh, very seriously, so seriously that if a betrothal was called off, you actually needed a certificate of divorce. So what we learn, Mary's young, she's engaged, she's betrothed, but she's also poor, really poor. And you might go, how do you know she's poor? Well, she's from a town called Nazareth. Nazareth is a podunk little town. It's, and it's famous now, like we know about it here. You've probably heard of Nazareth before. We know of it, but at the time, it was, it was like Lumbee. So kind of an insignificant, anyone from Lumbee? No, okay. I can go to town on Lumbee right now then. Lumbee, Coldstream, all of those godforsaken places. No, it's like this small little town between two other places. If you're from there, you don't tell people from there. You round up to the nearest community. Some of you, you, you do this, you know. I'm from here. No, you're not. You've been lying to everyone. This is, this is what Nazareth is. It's like the, the place that has the gas station that's also the liquor store that's also the grocery store, also where you get clothes. And if you go into it, you can see the owner's bedroom behind the corn dog stand. <laughs> You've been to that place before? This is Nazareth. John 1, John 1, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the thought of the time. Nazareth, this is where the angel shows up to young Mary. Now, Mary is often depicted kind of like gold robes, golden halo behind her. This is the image of Mary that we see in the West. This is, this is not the Mary of the Scripture. She was poor. When Scripture records them going to the temple to offer sacrifices, she offers the pigeons, the doves. She couldn't afford the real sacrifice, so she took the, the 
um, the allotment that the Lord had for those who were poor and couldn't afford a proper sacrifice. They offered the birds because she was poor, very poor. It's quite likely she wasn't even literate. Um, women at this time often weren't educated and even probably more so those who grew up in such a small town. She probably wore rags rather than robes. Comes from a small town, likely not literate. Yet when the angel approaches her in verse 28, he says, Greetings, O favored one. Greetings, O favored one. She has nothing, yet she's called favored. And there's a couple reasons um, for this. Um, but before we get into that, I think what I want we need to address is that often in our culture, people come in with some ideas about Mary. We, we might be prone to thinking about her in a certain way, especially if you've grown up in any sort of Catholic background. Um, Catholics hold Mary in very high regard. If you've grown up in a Catholic family, you've, you've probably been raised to honor and esteem Mary quite highly. Uh, and if you've grown up in a Protestant family, you probably haven't. And I would say there's error on both sides. There is uh, a, a danger, and they're on both sides of the horse, whichever side you fall off into. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Latin America. My wife and I spent a summer in Cuba, backpacking up and down it. And, and while I was there, I saw statues of Black Mary. She was a, a figure in Santeria who they would pray to in order to grant healings. I, we lived in Chile which is 98% Catholic. And so I've, my wife grew up Catholic. There's long traditions of praying to Mary, um, venerating, adorating Mary. Spent time in Mexico, seen giant statues of Mary in the center of town. I, I traveled one mountain pass one time, and there's a statue of Mary that in order to pass over the pass, all the drivers stop and go over and pray to or kiss or bow before Mary to grant them safe traveling mercies. There's lots of ideas about Mary, not all of which are helpful. He says, oh, greet, greeting, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. But there's nothing about Mary mentioned that's earned this favor. She's not favored because of anything she brings to the table. Actually, if you drop down to verse 30, it says, you have found favor with God. You didn't earn favor, you found favor with God. And I want to address actually some of these false teachings that many people put on to Mary. It's important. They're part of our cultural milieu and makeup. It's important that we're able to distinguish them and know why they're not true. Uh, there's a teaching within uh, Catholicism that says Mary was sinless. The catechism, that, that, that training within the Catholic Church for those who are coming up in the faith, it teaches that by the grace of God, Mary, this is a quote, Mary remained free from every personal sin her whole life long. To help support this teaching that Mary was sinless, they, they've invented a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. You've probably heard of that. There's churches called the Immaculate Conception. It's this idea, not that Jesus was born of a virgin, but that Mary was born sinless. She was immaculately conceived. It's a false teaching, it's, that is, it's not occurring in the scriptures. The idea that Mary didn't have a sin nature, it's not a scriptural one. Uh, and 
it's important that we get our theology, theology being our understanding of God and, and truth of its, in its core, we get it from Scripture, not from church tradition. Church tradition can share us a lot of wisdom, but it always needs to be Scripture on top of church tradition, not the other way around. Church tradition in the Catholic Church would say Mary's to be worshipped because she's sinless. The Bible, however, just does not paint that picture of this. In fact, Mary doesn't claim to be sinless. She went to the temple and offered a sacrifice for her sins. Sinless people don't need to go offer sacrifices. Mary offered sacrifices because Mary knew she was a sinner. Catholics will also teach Mary's mother was also a virgin. Again, just not a concept we see in the scriptures. There's a teaching within Catholicism that says Mary remained a virgin her whole life, as if to, to, to have uh, babies naturally, to be with her husband was a sinful act. It's not. It was actually part of God's good created intent, and Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. The scripture tells us this. Two of them, two half-brothers of Jesus, wrote books of the Bible, Jude and James, Mary had other children, another false teaching that's often associated with Mary. Sometimes she's called the queen of heaven. Again, no grounds in the scripture for, for calling her this. She's called the comediatrix, meaning that she's, she's part of who mediates for our sin, takes care of our sin. And this is why a lot of Catholics will pray, Dear Mary, Mother of God, as, as part of their their um, confession of sin and asking for forgiveness from sin. The Bible counters this idea that Mary is a co-mediatrix, though. In fact, um, 1 Timothy says there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Mary is nowhere either. There's one mediator. And so Mary's called a a (coughs) co-mediatrix. Pardon me. She's also sometimes called a co-redemptrix, meaning that we are redeemed in part because of the work of Mary. This is just not scriptural, though. Mary needed a redeemer just as we do. This is why she rejoiced and sang. Jesus is Mary's redeemer just as he is ours. Mary doesn't connect us to God. Jesus does. We don't pray to and worship Mary. We pray to and worship the same one Mary did, her son Jesus. She's not someone to be worshipped. But Mary is a model. She is a beautiful model of faith and worship. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. The angel comes and he calls her favored. And in the original um, Greek language here, Koine Greek, This word carries with it the idea of favor being grace, something unearned, unmerited. You have found unmerited favor with the Lord is is how we can read this. And this is an important distinction because what religion tries to do is find things that we do in order to please God, to earn God's grace. You do this, you get this from God. Like God's a cosmic pinata that we whack things out of with our good deeds. Christianity teaches something very different. We bring nothing to the table. All we do is come empty-handed, and God, by his grace, gifts us salvation. 
Two very different ideas. One will come here and say Mary's favored because of these attributes that she has, which the scriptures don't give. We should read this as Mary receives favor because of God's grace. That's why. The angel comes, he says, greetings, O favored one, and then he, he goes into six things. He tells her six things about the Savior, six things about this Messiah that she's been waiting for, the nation's been waiting and longing for, six things, and they're important for us to know. We're just going to walk through them. So again, if you have your Bible open, drop down, look at verse 31 with me, see the first thing that it says. It says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. She'll call his name Jesus. The first thing we need to know about the Messiah, he has to be called Jesus. And there's lots in here. Lots and lots and lots. Um, this, this name Jesus that we are, you know, Jesus is known around the world with was not actually his name. That's, that's sort of this transliteration of some languages. It was Yeshua. Yeshua. That's the original name of Jesus. Yah, an abbreviation for Yahweh, the name of God in Exodus 3, and Yasha, which means rescue, deliver, or save. And so together, what this name Yeshua means is God saves. That's the significance of the name Jesus. Uh, the English spelling of this Hebrew name is Joshua, which is why you all love my name so much. It's a beautiful, second greatest name given amongst men. But... I kid, but there's lots and lots of theological richness in the name Jesus. I'm going to put a pin in it right now because this is what I want to do on Christmas Eve, and I'm not going to preach my sermon yet. There's so much there. I'm going to come back. We're going to dive into that Christmas Eve. But first thing we need to see, his name's to be Jesus. Secondly, verse 32, if you keep reading, it says, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He's going to be called Great. Great meaning highly esteemed, eminent, high in authority, great in strength. He's going to be one of the great ones of the earth. That's the idea of being communicated. A couple hundred years before Jesus, there was a great one, Alexander the Great. He, he was, by 32 years of age, had conquered really almost the known world, very famous. We still know his name today. At the time of Christ was another great one, Herod the Great. Herod the Great a, a, a Roman authority, um, political ruler in, in, in the region at the time, notorious, notorious guy. He earned the name Herod the Great. If you read on ahead in the story, you'll find out he came and he called for all of the, the children to be killed because he heard the Messiah was coming and he didn't want anyone to surpass him and usurp his greatness. Other great ones, the angel shows up and tells Mary, your son, Jesus, is going to be great, and he has been proved to be that. 2,000 years later, 2 billion people call, to him, call him Lord and follow him. He's great. It's greater than any other who's come before him or any after. He will be called great. He will be called, thirdly, son of the most high. He'll be called the son of God. You've heard this title likely, the Son of God. It can be a bit confusing. You're like, is he God? Is he the Son of God? In the original language, uh, there is, it gets a little clearer, it's, but it, this is a rich line of truth. Uh, rich line of truth, but many have misunderstood who Jesus is by this title as well. Uh, one commentator said this. I found this helpful. 
He was the son of God, not by creation, as angels and men, like you and I. We're, we're sons of God because we're made by him. He's not the son of God by adoption, as, as us, who've been adopted into the family of God after Christ atoned for our sins. He's not the son of God by office, as magistrates are who would rule in the land. But being the eternal son of God, by nature, he's the son of God. Of the same nature with him, God, equal to him, God. For he was not now to begin being the son of God. He was before, even from all eternity. So the scripture, it refers to him both as God and the son of God. It gets really clear if you go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Tell me who this is talking about. It says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Who is this? Jesus, yeah. Us a child is born, his son is given Jesus. The government shall be upon Jesus' shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Look at it, Mighty God. Jesus is called God. He's more than the Son of God, he's called God. Look at what else he's called, Everlasting Father. Let that knock around in your, your mind over Christmas. Is it perplexing? Yes. Jesus gets called God and Everlasting Father. His name is Jesus. He will be great, and he is both son of God and God at the same time. As we read on, what we're going to see here in verse 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He's going to have the throne of David. Now, if we were to have dropped into Matthew's gospel instead of Luke to read the Advent account, the birth of Christ, what we would have seen is Matthew begins his account of the life of Christ with two genealogies. He gives genealogies and proves because the Jewish people were very obsessed with genealogies because promises had been made to specific people in the Old Testament. And they wanted to track these genealogies to find the one who was promised would come from certain people. And so Matthew's genealogy begins by showing that Jesus is from the genealogy of, um, pardon me, I, I feel like I tripped over my words. I'm going to restate it. Matthew's gospel begins showing that Jesus descended from the genealogy of David. Both the kingly and the priestly, both as king and both as priest, descended from David. And, and that's nerdy. There's more than we can unpack right now, but you can go and research that on your own. Uh, what, what we're being shown is that Jesus descends from David. And this is why it's important, is because a promise was made to David in 2 Samuel 7. God said this to him, I will give you, David, rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, meaning when he's died, I will raise up an offspring after you, who shall come from your body, he'll be of your lineage, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is what people are waiting for. They're, they're, they're waiting for this promised one from the lineage of David. And in Matthew's genealogy, we're, we're shown this is Jesus. And this is what the angel tells her as well is that he will sit on the throne of his father, David. 
verse 33 tells us something else, is that he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's going to reign forever. He's going to be eternal. If, if he's to sit on this throne and his kingdom will have no end, he can't be man because we all die. We have a, a, everyone who's ever reigned as a relatively short reign. This one's said to be forever, and so Jesus needs to be different. He needs to not be temporal. He needs to be eternal. And Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus has neither beginning nor end. He's eternal. He didn't begin existing when he was born. He's existed from the beginning, and he lives forever. So Jesus can do what no other descendant of David could ever do, which is sit on that throne forever. Now, as we read on here, we'll get to our sixth point in a minute, but I just want us to observe Mary's response here. Take a look in verse 34. In response to these first five things that she's told, she says, how will this be? I'm a virgin. And, and I want us to understand this correctly. In her response here, she doesn't laugh like Sarah did in the Old Testament when she was told she would become pregnant. She doesn't scoff like Zechariah did and was made mute like we saw last week. She says, I believe. I believe, but how does this work? It's, it's a different approach. She's not doubting, but she has questions. She has faith, but she has questions. And this is important to know. We talked about this in our doubting series. It's okay to have questions. God's okay with your questions. Doubt leads us away with our questions. Questions are meant to actually draw us in lead us forward in our faith. She comes with a question, and, and the angel graciously responds. He responds, and he tells her. And in this, there's something powerful that I don't want us to miss, a beautiful example of Mary. She has faith. What's her faith in? The word of God. What he promised her faith's in the promises to the patriarchs before her. Her faith is in the promises of God towards her that they were going to come to fulfillment in her. She has faith in the promises of God. And that's an important distinction. And, and I want to pause here and kind of do a little parenthesis for a second. Because today, faith is often called something very different. Today, often, faith is this idea that we just believe something's going to happen and it'll happen. That's faith in faith not faith in the word of God. Faith today looks a lot more like the secret, where if we just positively visualize it and work ourselves up into a lather enough, it'll happen. But that's not the biblical definition of, of faith. That's not the description that we see in, in Scripture. It doesn't tell us that if we just have enough faith, we'll get a, the million bucks or the touchdown or the house or the girl or the guy or the healing or the promotion. That's, that's not what the Scripture tells us. Christian faith isn't an unshakable confidence that we'll get what we want. Christian faith is the unshakable confidence that God's word will do what it said it would. I want to say that again. That's important. Christian faith isn't the unshakable confidence that we will get what we want. Rather, Christian faith is the unshakable confidence that God's word will do what he said it would. Mary is a beautiful picture of trust 
in God's word, despite what everything around looks like. She has confidence in the word of God, and we know it came to pass. She's a beautiful example of faith. The angel uh, visited her. He responds to her, her question, how will this be? And he says, he says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy. This is the sixth thing he tells her about this Messiah who she would become pregnant with. He would be holy. And in the Greek here, this word, it means most holy. It means blameless. It means pure. And it's noteworthy because you can't say this about your kids. You couldn't say, oh, they're... I mean, just wait a year if you're saying that about your kids, and you'll, you'll redact that quickly. But he's saying, I couldn't call my newborn holy in this regard, or pure in this regard, or blameless in this regard. It's a different sort of thing. It's, it's, it's used to describe something different than us. We're, we're born in sin. Even from the womb, we're born sinful. We couldn't use this to describe us. So the question becomes, how could... God, take on human flesh and not inherit a sin nature like you and I. If we've all inherited that, how could God take on human flesh and not take on the sin nature that the rest of us take on in our human flesh? Lots of really important theological points here in this text. Uh, Many Old Testament prophecies being referenced uh, that, uh, that are coming to be right here. Actually, I want to take us back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7 refers to this as well. Um, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. Jesus is God. Come down, put on flesh in order to rescue his people from his sins. He added humanity to his divinity. But then the question is, how did he put humanity on and not lose his divinity? How did he put humanity on and not take on the sinfulness that the rest of us in our humanity have? How could he do this? Well, it's, it's, it's hidden in this verse. He's born of a virgin. He's born of a virgin, and this is why it's important. I'm going to get nerdy with you. The Catholics went backwards and said that Mary was born sinless or by a virgin as well in order to try to do away with this problem, saying, well, Mary didn't have a sin nature, and then she never sinned. Ergo, she was able to give birth to Jesus without him taking on a sin nature. But if you go back and you examine the scriptures deeper than we're going to have time to do right now, so grant me that, what you'll find is that the Bible says sin is passed down seminally meaning this, that it's passed down from our fathers. We inherit the sins of our fathers. And so, quite literally, our sin nature comes from our father and is passed down. So by taking the father out and Jesus being born of the Holy Spirit, he came in and did not take on that sin nature because, well, Mary was a sinner. She did not inherit the sin nature from her. There's... There's actually a really beautiful promise in here, too, that we can miss. If you remember back in Genesis 3.14, God came down after 
Um, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. He came down, addressed the serpent, Eve, and then Adam. Do you remember what he said, Genesis 3.14? To, to Eve, he promised that from her, would, from her seed, would come one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Remember that? Remember, think of this for a second. The promise there was not made to Adam from his seed. It was a promise made that from Eve's seed would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. See that? It's coming past here right now, coming to pass. From her seed, the Savior comes, who could not be touched by the seed of man because he would have inherited the sin nature. So the Holy Spirit comes and impregnates Eve. Way more in here than we could ever unpack. There's so much. It's a rich text. Uh, This is like kind of one of those presents that your annoying uncle gives you that's got 14 layers of paper on it. Except for it's good. You just keep peeling back, and there's more and more and more in this text. It's a juicy one. If you drop down to uh, verse 46, though, we're going to see Mary's response. And, and we're skipping over a chunk. We're skipping over Mary going to her cousin Elizabeth. And when she sees her, Elizabeth's baby John, who is born to announce the, the coming of the Messiah, he, he jumps in her womb. That's a sign to Elizabeth. We're going to skip over that. Though there is lots of goodness there. What I want us to see as we drop down to verse 45, 46, is Mary's response to everything that's just happened to her. It says this. What we're going to see is Mary respond in song. This little 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl breaks out into a song which in nine lines, I've counted at least 17 truths about God and his character. And we're going to walk through them all really, really quickly. Don't worry. We're not here all afternoon. Nine verses, 17 truths. You'll see it it references, if you want to go check this out on your own, the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel. Closely parallels it. It picks up language some of the um, messianic expectation verbiage from the Psalms. It's picking up tons of language and, and expectation from the Old Testament major and minor prophets. It's, it's a rich text. And you might wonder, how does a 12-year-old little girl just open her mouth and out comes all this theology? Like, she, she might very likely was illiterate. How does she have this? And I feel a challenge just as a parent and, and looking at this and going, I think it's because her parents taught her the scriptures. The scripture tells us this too, parents. You know, train your child in the way they should go, and then, and then they won't depart from it. We're to teach our kids, train them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. This is what the scripture tells us. Here we see this. Mary opens her mouth and out comes scripture because her parents taught it to her. Nine verses, 17 points I'm just going to breeze through this. Look at verse 45, 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She calls him Lord. Rich terminology. We could spend time unpacking it. Lord, the sovereign, the one I bow to. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She she calls God her Savior. 
the one who's coming in her womb, she calls her Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's the God who sees. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows even little Mary from Podunk, Nazareth. He's the God who sees. He says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. He's mighty. And holy is his name. He's holy. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's singing of his, the merciful character of God that he's been revealed from generation to generation is now going to fully consummate in the arrival of his son to, to show mercy upon all of humanity by dying for their sins. He's merciful. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered or it, pardon me, I skipped over this. It says his mercy is for those who fear him. He's to be feared. He's a fearful God, yet he's a merciful God. He has shown strength with his arm. He's self-revealing. He scattered the proud in thought of their hearts. He, he, he's the, the, the opposer of the proud. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's the exalter of the humble. He's the lifter of the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things. He's the fulfiller of the hungry. He's the ultimate provider. He's that bread from heaven. He's the one that our soul needs. He's helped the servant Israel. The God of the universe, the one called Lord Almighty to be feared, is also a helper. He's merciful. He's the giver of good things. He's the one who spoke to the fathers. He's the one who keeps covenant. She goes on and on and on. She ends by saying this, he's helped his servant Israel. How? By sending the Messiah, the one that the people of God were waiting for. He sent his, he sent his servant. He's remembered his mercy just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to the offspring after him. She says he's the God who, who's merciful. He's the God who remembers his covenants, who does what he said he would. She's singing straight theology. The story opens with a young girl minding her own business when suddenly an angel appears, tells her the craziest news you could ever imagine coming up with. And this incredible story gets now just steeped in rich theology, Old Testament prophecy. It picks up themes and topics that are powerful. And they were powerful then. It reminded them that God heard. But they're powerful for us today as well because you and I, as I mentioned at the beginning, our, our Messiah has come, but he's coming again. And we exist in a season of waiting just like they did. These songs here, they remind us that just as they're singing, because God has remembered his promises, we will one day sing because God's promises will come true for us as well. And we can sing now because while it hasn't happened or yet come to fruition, it will. God promised to send a Messiah, and he did. He came and he died for our sins, and he now rules and reigns in heaven. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not yet fully consummated. And it's coming, and so we're in this already and not yet, and we're in these seasons of Advent, and we do this every year because we remind ourselves, God hears. He's faithful. 
His promises won't return to him void. And this song of Mary, this song of Mary, we need to allow it to remind us of the goodness and character and faithfulness of God. Just as he was good and kind and faithful towards the people of Israel, he will be for us. And, and we need to let this text remind us and stir us through the example of Mary. Now, some of us, if you're like me, you've you, you grown up maybe in reaction to some of the false worship of Mary that we've seen in the Catholic Church. We've undervalued the model that she is. She is a beautiful model of a young woman whose heart wholly trusts the promises of God will come to pass and allows them to not just change her thinking but to transform her life. This young woman willingly says, let it be done to me. Look at, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Her hope all of her life trusts that the plan of God will bring goodness. Come what may now, she says. And we know she was mocked. People called her Jesus' whore mom, if we were to translate it into the modern verbatim language today. She said, come what may, just let your promise come through me. Model, she models faith for us, but she also models worship. Verse 47, she says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Her spirit rejoices. Her very being rejoices. And this is a challenge for us. I think this is kind of the rub. Is that for many of us, we come and, and we praise and we sing. But I don't know that it could be said that actually our spirit rejoices. The whole of our life rejoices. If we're honest, lots of our life doesn't. Isaiah um, picks up on this. Isaiah, the salvation and the future that he secured for us is secure. And it needs to unpack and transform all of our lives. Every last bit of it. And so as we head in to this last week in the lead up to the advent of the Messiah... Remember the longing of Israel and the faithfulness of God to them. And then reassure yourself, preach to yourself and remind yourself that the promises towards us are just as sure. We read these as rem to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and to kind of kickstart us, to activate us, to reignite our faith right now and remind ourselves that God's promises towards us are just as sure as well. Mary sang it, and she lived it, and this needs to be our heart as well. And so um, I'm going to close us in prayer, and then um, we're going to respond together by singing. And I just, as we do so, examine your heart and ask, Lord, how does this, where am I forgetting that your promises are true? Father, we thank you. Thank you that this story has been preserved to remind us of your goodness and faithfulness. Thank you that you are the God who sees people in their despair despair in their longing in their 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 hearts cry for you to come that you heard and that you hear today as well and whatever we've come in with in this season of 
of, of waiting and expectation of our own. We trust that you're the author of salvation, the author of life, that while we find ourselves in these middle chapters where we don't know what's taking place, we know that you've written the end and it's sure and it's secure and the lines as the psalmist said have fallen for me in pleasant places. So we just join in saying, who are we that you're mindful of us, your people? You're good, great, gracious, and kind towards us. And so all praise, all glory be due back to the Son. And Holy Spirit, would you come now as we respond and just show us where we might not be living as if this is true. Help us to consider and learn from the example of Mary and help our mind to be filled once again with the great promises that you have before us. And we pray in this great name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Amen.